Hi, and welcome to a special series of The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and this is Eastern Africa's Jihadis, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Over five weeks, we're exploring the roots and spread of jihadism across the Eastern African coast, from Somalia to Mozambique. For our second episode, we're speaking to Samira Gaid, executive director of the Haral Institute and a former special advisor to the Somali prime minister. She speaks with us about the rise and reach of al-Shabaab in Somalia and what would be needed to bring the long war there to a close. Samira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we've talked quite a bit about al-Shabaab on this show, but we, we haven't actually talked much about its origins. So I'm just wondering if you could talk us through, you know, how this group ended up being formed in Somalia. Okay, so the origin of Islamic extremism in Somalia can be traced back to the 1960s when that kind of Islamism was introduced uh, to Somalia. But it developed much later because at the time in 1969, we had the military coup and the president who took over them, the military regime really clamped down on both religion and clan in the country and was pushing social uh, socialism at the time, scientific socialism. So what happened is after the collapse of government in 91, then you had all these groups that had started forming, you know, a lot of clerics that had returned from Egypt, had come from the Middle East, came back to the country and started, you know, forming, you know, madrasas and schools and all of that in Somalia. But at the time, they were just looking for a more Islamic way of life. Uh, but in 1996, there was this um, invasion, the, an invasion by the Ethiopians that is not talked about a lot, but in the areas of Gedo, that really was to push away what they thought at the time was Islamism and Islamic jihadis who are starting to form in Gedo. And that sort of triggered some realization in those people, in, in the leaders at the time. They moved down south, they moved, I mean, to Mogadishu. And in Mogadishu, you had the Islamic Courts Union that had started to form, which was basically just a number of um, Islamic clerics who had come together to try and stabilize the country, supported by the business community. And so the business community and the Islamic courts were working together to try and shield the people from the warlords who had like 10 years of just mayhem in Somalia at the time. So it started innocently as the Islamic Courts Union, but there was a, a core group that was always for radical Islam and taking over the country and, you know, pushing this Islamic state in Somalia. But they didn't have much space within the organization at the time. But um, the Ethiopian invasion in support of Abdullahi Yusuf, that invasion then triggered, you know, a split. The ICU was broken and then the formation of Al-Shabaab as we know it today began then. Thanks, Samira. Can you just uh, talk through sort of the politics of that time, the, the Ethiopian invasion that was in 2006, and then, you know, the, the brief uh, Islamic Courts Union rule in Mogadishu, and then, and then what came after? So the Islamic courts at the time were welcomed by Somalis. They were seen as nationalists. Uh, they, the capital had really, you know, changed in terms of governance. Uh, there was just governance. There was a, a rule of law, as we would describe it, as compared to what existed before with the warlords. So a lot of Somalis welcomed the Islamic courts union. So then you had... Uh, Abdullahi Yusuf, who comes from the north of Somalia, from from Puntland area, coming into Baidoa, not really to the capital, and trying to take over the capital as a duly elected 
president would say of the transitional federal government. So again, you see a bit of a clan dynamic because he wasn't as well accepted as President Abdekasim, who had, had been selected in a similar election in 2000, but was able to come to Mogadishu. So you could see a bit of the clan dynamic because the courts were also from the opposing clan and he wasn't welcomed into Mogadishu. For him to come back to Mogadishu, he, he gathered the support of the Ethiopians. So he was, of course, seen as an invading force together with the Ethiopians and was not welcomed into the capital. And at the time, the messaging to the Somalis by the Islamic Courts Union was this is an invading force of Ethiopians. And you may know that Somalia and Ethiopia have this historic enmity. So Somalis were traveling from all over the world to join this nationalist group that was trying to kick out the, the Ethiopians. And they were trying to mess up what really they saw as a good thing, you know, stability in the capital, uh, justice in the capital, you know, peace for, for, that had not been seen in a very long time. Mm. And then... First of all, just to note that, of course, the, the U.S. also, you know, backed Ethiopia on this invasion. So it did have, you know, there's a sort of international element to this mm -hmm. as well, to the toppling mm -hmm. of the Islamic Courts Union in Mogadishu. Can you just talk about how elements of the Islamic Courts Union then ended up forming al-Shabaab? Yes. So and just to touch on the U.S., the U.S. also supported the warlords. There was a council of the warlords that was in the capital that was still opposing the Islamic Courts Union. So they were supposedly also supported by the US. And, and that, that was right after 9-11. And so there was a fear that whatever is happening in Mogadishu could expand out, take over the whole of the region. But at the time, the Islam, Islamic Courts Union had contained this core group that had been in Afghanistan in the late 80s that was back in Somalia and were really a clique within the courts. And the courts were, it wasn't just one court, it was a number of courts. And so they managed the, the, the largest court. Uh, this core group that had come back from Afghanistan that was really interested in in radical Islam and in uh, the Islamic way of life and in taking over the state and governance. So that group was more organized than the rest of the Islamic Courts Union who were just, you know, sometimes supporting the business community, protecting them from the warlords. Some of the courts were interested in just stability in the capital, but this group, this particular um, court, was more interested in taking over the nation. And so this group became the main force that was opposing the Ethiopian invasion. And the rest of the group, the more moderate elements of the group, left the country. You know how you have Sheikh Sharif, who later became president, going to Djibouti, then to Eritrea. A lot of the group fell apart and left the country, but this was the core that remained. So from its beginning, um, Al-Shabaab has these components of, you know, it's sort of born of a of a strong nationalism against this invading force. Um, but then, as you mentioned, it's also a, a sort of radicalized wing who takes over after this Ethiopian invasion in 2006, which was tied to Afghanistan and a sort of global Islamist ideology. How has uh, Al-Shabaab managed to merge both that nationalism and this sort of transnational Islamist ideology at the same time? And then how has that evolved, those sort of dual identities? So that's, that's quite interesting because Al-Shabaab's existence is based on its nationalist objectives, its existence within Somalia, and it really pushes that nationalist agenda. And that is really what resonates with the Somalis. If you would ask the regular Somali, they do see them still as a group that doesn't oppose them, but opposes the invaders. And we've always been, I think, a bit sensitive to invasion and all of that. Uh, everyone would be, but Somalia in particular has had issues with its neighbors, Kenya and Ethiopia, historical issues because of our borders. And so it's something that most Somalis are quite sensitive to. So 
the group has been very smart about how it pu- it pushes its narrative and it's mainly a nationalist narrative at the same time the core is not a nationalist core it's really you know for global jihad so it maintains a thin balance so it has to have one of this spectacular attacks every now and then it conducts this cross border attacks just to maintain that it's al qaeda's uh, east africa affiliate but within somalia how it manages itself is it governs within the clans and it manages a relationship with the clan so that it can continue to to be seen as that national uh, that somali organization Thanks, Samira. That's that's really interesting. Uh, it sounds like, in fact, less so than actually merging the two, that it remains just sort of an, an outstanding tension in the group. I want to get back to the points you made about uh, governance and the clan dynamics and how al-Shabaab sort of utilizes that. Uh, first of all, how, how much territory does al-Shabaab now control? Um, Al-Shabaab, uh, there's two aspects to it. The territories that it controls, you could really map them out to a, a number of districts that you, it officially controls. That would be where they have a base in, uh, say, the Jubas, in middle Juba. That would be in the north, uh, in Galmudug, where they, ex- they, are, they hold the port of Harardere. So if you look at south-central Somalia, in you know, technically, they, they, they have 30% of the territory. But in the real sense, they control much more through their taxation, through their insurgency, through coercion, through terrorism, um, through the justice system. So you could say that they expand more to around 80% where they have, you know, implicit control. Okay. Well, 80% is a really high figure and <laughs> makes it almost seem like a lot of the official politics in the country is not really catching the the proper picture of politics in Somalia. Um so so how does you mentioned this you started mentioning this a bit but how does al-Shabaab govern in the areas it controls and the areas it reaches even if it doesn't territorially control them? How does it govern and how does that differ from the ways that the official regional and national governments govern? So I'll start with al-Shabaab. So al-Shabaab itself in in the territories that it governs, especially where it's dominant and there's no other uh, you know risk to it whether it's a federal government administration or a regional administration or a clan administration where it has complete control, there it does it governs by you know strict Islamic law, coercion, you know brute force and it manages the territory and the people there really live in a very oppressed way of life. In the areas where it has, you know, a bit of competition, especially competition from regional forces or from clan forces, you find that al-Shabaab integrates itself with the clan structures. It uses the clan elders and not at the highest level, but at the lower levels, the clan families, the smaller level. And it would use these clan elders for recruitment, for collection of zakah. And the clan elders are said to take a cut out of the resources that they collect. So then the clan elder is now obliged and is the intermediary between Shabab and the population. And because the clan structure is really the, the way the Somali system is governed, they are more acceptable and more palatable to the population that way. So it depends on exactly the territory and the circumstances that Al-Shabaab is in. Uh, for instance, in the capital, they really, you know, just conduct terrorist attacks for it and they, they have their insurgency. They're really an undercover counter-state. They collect their taxes from most businesses, from the seaport. So it, it it's it's a patchwork in the in the system that they govern. But what's really interesting is in the areas that they completely govern, they have a justice system, they have an education system, you know, they have their ministries uh, laid out the same way a government's ministries would be. They have the ministers, they have regional leaders who are sort of, you know, independent, are disconnected from the center, but still report back to the, the core. Now, 
what's interesting, you know, often from the outside, uh, it looks like Somali politics, when it comes to the federal government and the member states, often, you know, uh, gets very divided on these clan lines and often, you know, almost gets paralyzed on them. So so how does al-Shabaab manage to use the clan system, you know, but 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 not fall into the traps that seem to really ail the, the national politics? So unfortunately, at the national side, the only time that you see a, a relationship between the clan elders is during the electoral season. So the clan elders are used to select the clan representatives that would select a member of parliament. And then for the rest of the four-year term, you would barely hear about clan elders. And this is something I think that the government should change and should improve if it intends on winning this war. But what Al-Shabaab does is basically really integrate its structures to the clan elders. And it's not really that the clan elders are happy to be used in this way, but whoever opposes them is usually replaced or is killed. And so what you have is really the the hinterland is really controlled by al-Shabaab and the people really just interact with al-Shabaab and clan elders. Mm. And from within Somalia, does does often the, the Somali state feel like more of an international project than, than a Somali one, given the context you're describing, including the security often being provided by the African Union mission? Uh, to be honest, it's a parallel life. The Somali people, the business community, they're doing all they can to just exist in this and they have been existing for the past, you know, 20, 30 years. And so you have a parallel state, a government that interacts with the international community, but really doesn't cut across. So there is like a huge divide between the people and the government. And then you have also Al-Shabaab on the other side. So Al-Shabaab is closer in a sense because it interacts with the clan structures, but really the, the people are right bang in the center. Mm. And so you're describing an organization that provides a lot of governance services, uh, but also an organization that is also just uh, sounds very Somali. And, and that's interesting in part, just because I think oftentimes the, the discourse from outside Somalia can paint Al-Shabaab, you know, because it's the Al-Qaeda affiliate in East Africa as a, you know, is almost a, a foreign led organization. Um, I'm assuming Al-Shabaab has real appeal for many Somalis. And, and you know, and that also drives the recruitment. Is, is that correct? Yes, it still it still has appeal because, uh, as you know, we're still governed by a clan system. We've been trying, the government has been trying to change that to one person, one vote, where, you know, there would be more inclusivity, more representation within within government of all clans and all peoples. Can I just intervene for a second? Can you explain the, the 4.5 clan system to uh, listeners who are not familiar with that? Okay, so the 4.5 system is really something that was coined uh, in in 2000 and in, in Arta Djibouti when we had the first government, uh, the first, first transitional national government come in. Uh, we couldn't agree on who would take on the leadership and how we would, uh, you know, divide our parliamentary seats. And so at the time they, they agreed on a system that would, you know, split the country, split the people into four major clans and 0.5 would be the minority clans are all clustered in the 0.5. So if you have 275 members of parliament, then you have 61 members of parliament for each of the major clans. And then you have 30, I think it's uh, it's 62 and then 31 for the 0.5. So the, this is really disadvantageous to the minorities, number one, and number two, to women. Uh, so it's a it's a system that is you know antagonistic, and this has been happening even before state collapse, where you had just the major clans, two major clans, uh, holding most of uh, most of the power of the country. And so there is that discontent, there is that uh, anger towards the major clans, and this is what Al Shabaab appeals to. And then you would see within Al Shabaab. 
Arab, they try and, you know, dominate these two major clans, the Hawiya and the Darod, to be specific. And they don't give them the major uh, responsibilities and the you know the more visible positions and they give the more visible positions like the Amir for instance comes from uh, the Dir clan which is from Somaliland really and so they they give prominent positions to uh, you know the lower clans people who have felt marginalized and so that appeals to Somalis who feel like we want a just system and this not only Somalis from the minority clans even those from the major clans do feel that sometimes we do need a, a just meritocracy rather than you know the 4.5 system we talked earlier about al-shabaab's more nationalist origins and nationalist agenda and, and rhetoric now um, but then also that it is the al-qaeda affiliate in east africa how has uh, that played out those two dynamics how has that played out recently in terms of the the leadership of al-shabaab uh, do, do the current leaders are they more focused on this nationalist agenda or is there more of a focus on, on sort of achieving transnational objectives at the moment the leadership right now, the core is more, you know, transnationalist agenda. They managed to, you know, eliminate everyone who had the nationalist agenda, the nationalist cause. You have Mukhtar Robo, who is currently held in in the capital by Nisa. You have Dahira Wais, who was also one of those pushing the nationalist agenda. And most of the defectors or those killed were those who are pushing, you know, a nationalist agenda and were hoping, you know, we're fighting this, but just to uh, to gain, you know, uh, leadership in the country and to evict uh, Ethiopian forces. But as soon as we can come to a political agreement, then we're good to go. But you have this, um, the the current leadership, the core that remains are, are not for that. It's, uh, it's everything, which is uh, just an Islamic state, no other uh, foreign troops or other, um, you know, puppets, as they would call them, would remain and there would be no possibility of engaging with them or, you know, discussing a political settlement with the current leadership right now. So it's really a hardcore group that remains within the organization. What you have right now is not as many foreigners, really East Africans, are, uh, Tanzanians, Ugandans, Kenyans are the main uh, foreigners within the organization. And for them, it's not really about transnational jihad, but it's like, you know, they're also marginalized and unhappy with the situations they have back home and so are interested in taking the group to their countries. So that relationship with the groups like Al-Hijra that was in Kenya, it exists. But within Al-Shabaab, you do have East Africans who want to expand the Islamic State and move out of Somalia and take it further into the region. You've advised the Somali government at a uh, a senior level, uh, and so you've you've seen this very much from the inside. I'm just wondering what's been done to to counter Al Shabab from Mogadishu and from international partners, and why is it that these efforts are are not working? Okay, so the challenge that we have really at the at base of it is that the Somali uh, security forces really just started being formed in the past ten fifteen years. So we didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't build our security forces at peacetime. We are really building them as we fight this group. And so you have an under-resourced security forces who are not well-equipped or capable to fight this organization or whole territory. And so that's where the Amisom 
piece comes into play. Amazon, which is better equipped, well, uh, well-resourced, can hold territory. And so we have been trying to build up the security forces to the point that they can now hold territory and not just conduct, you know, clear operations. And then at the same time, Al-Shabaab is not static. Al-Shabaab has changed. It's not no longer interested in holding territory. It's interested in its insurgency and, and you know, hit and run attacks and terror attacks. And so the security forces that you're building in a certain direction midway have to keep adapting. So it's really a very difficult uh, difficult thing to do. And then you, on top of that, have uh, changes in administration. You have had uh, uh, Sheikh Sharif, who was the president after Abdullahi Yusuf, who really uh, conducted major offensives in the, in the capital and pushed them out of the capital. You had President Hassan Sheikh, who came after and pushed them out into, you know, the, the, took away all their seaports. And then they adapted, and now they have this uh, way of collecting resources without using the seaports without really manning the seaports. And then now you have the current government that has focused on creating special forces that conduct clear operations. But still what is lacking, in my opinion, is a Somali-owned initiative. All these are foreign-led initiatives. Sometimes, you know, Amisom, I think, to date has been drafting the concept of operations in the fight against Al-Shabaab. The Somali government just started Somali-led organizations supported by Amazon. And so the international community on their side puts a lot of their resources in, number one, Amazon, number two, uh, the Somali federal forces who might not have the reach that regional forces have. So it's really a complicated egg. And I would say the most important thing would be for the federal government and the federal member states to really work together, closely together. Federal member state forces are more acceptable in the regions they are, get the resources that they require, and then conduct joint operations. The conflict in Somalia with al-Shabaab is, you know, starting to get lumped into this basket of conflicts around the world um, since the global war on terror began that people are calling forever wars. From your perspective, you know, how does the war on al-Shabaab end? The next four to eight years, to me, are very critical because as uh, as we see across the world, I mean, we see what's happening with Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, the interest as well in Somalia by the EU in continuing to fund AMISOM for the mission is really waning. So I see a huge risk that the Somali security forces will not be at the right place at the right time. And so that's why the four, the next four to eight years are so critical that we continue to build the security forces, make the agreements that we need between ourselves and the federal member states, and really con- prepare ourselves for this eventual exit. But it depends on a leadership. It depends on the Somali leadership understanding the threat and the, the fact that they need to take on the responsibilities sooner rather than later. Mm. Now, obviously, the... Um... The shadow of Afghanistan and, and what's happening there and how the, you know, the, the U.S.-led international coalition is coming to an end there obviously hangs over all of this. I, I'm wondering how you see the uh, exit of Amazon happening. Do you think it'll be orderly or do you think there's a risk that it looks like a sudden pullout? I really don't think it's going to be a sudden pullout, nor is it going to be disorderly. I think it's just going to be, you know... Uh, the the cuts have been coming. There were twenty two thousand. Now we have nineteen thousand forces on the ground. Uh, I understand uh, that by January next year there might be another, uh, you know, stipend slash by half. And so the the TCCs really have a challenge to either maintain the forces at their current levels and cut their salaries by half or cut their men by half. So this will be really a challenge for the AU and the TCCs to really decide how they want to maintain that territory. And then, you know, we are in the middle of an electoral process. Uh, Whatever administration comes in has to really negotiate this. 
uh, knowing what the, 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 the Somali security forces are, understanding how uh, to, you know, integrate Somali security forces with AMISOMs, either uh, half, uh, whether they're halved or whether they're just the same number of forces who are at that time also not very interested in conducting operations. So it's really a challenge uh, the way I see it. I, I see it as, you know, just slowly they will keep on, you know, uh, closing up the, the, the tap and AMISOM and TCCs will have to make decisions as they go. So this whole process might go over a period of five years, but with an eventual, you know, exit. And I think everyone who who talks about the future of this conflict in Somalia, you know, I think most people recognize that eventually there will need to be dialogue. Clearly, the, the military solution is not working and is, and is unlikely to, to provide a solution at the end. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of obstacles too. A dialoguing between uh, what's a very weak government and um, an Al Shabaab that, as you say, has has control of significant parts of the country. What would actually need to happen? Um, I'm just wondering if you can sketch me out a scenario where this actually starts happening. The Somali the Somali government really at the moment what we lack is interlocutors from the Somali side of the uh, of the uh, of the table. You of course Al Shabaab exists, and at this point, I don't think are interested in any sort of dialogue. They do see uh, the writing on the wall, the Americans leaving Afghanistan, the 800 troops that were in the country left. They do see the pressure that's coming on uh, AMISOM. So for them, it's a wait and see game. At this moment, I, I don't think they're as interested in dialogue as we would expect. But then you do need a strengthened Somali administration. And you have a population really at the moment, which is quite war fatigued and ready for just peace. And so the support from the population to continue this fight without uh, external troops would be very minimal. And so eventually you would have an, that pressure on the group itself to come to the table. But a strengthened Somali government, uh, a government that works well with its federal member states, regions and the capital that are, you know, conducting the fight, conducting this, uh, uh, holding operations together, that would be more tenable if you're talking about, you know, dialogue in the future. And in the meantime, then you also need to build up the Somali stakeholders who would be the ones participating in this dialogue, who would be the, the best interlocutor to, to work with Al-Shabaab. And at this point, I think clan elders would be, some people disagree, but I would think clan el- elders would be the be- best entry point to talking to Al-Shabaab. Hmm. And do you think the Somali government will ever initiate such dialogue seriously on its own terms or... As I think you you might be alluding to, do you think it will basically require foreign pressure uh, in the form of you know the withdrawal of a lot of this outside support to to really force Mogadishu to take this up seriously? I think the Somali political elite would be interested in taking this on and taking it forward, but there's always that risk of who will be the one who says I want a dialogue with them because there's an assumed backlash that will come with that. So I, I think the Somali politi- the politicians would be ripe. But at this moment, they're still, you know, engaged in their own political machinations, you know, trying to gain power center to periphery. And, and that's what's really occupying them. And it's not really the Al-Shabaab fight or the Al-Shabaab negotiations. So I, I know this is a bit speculative, do you, but do you have any thoughts what a, you know, a potential settlement what, with Al-Shabaab could even possibly look like? I think it, the specifics would have to be discussed closer to that time, and it would depend on how much strength they see within the federal government and what it would look like on the other side. At this time, the odds are in their end, but uh, it depends on when exactly that is conducted. So it would be hard to speculate now. Okay. Now, 
a lot of what we've talked about, uh, both in the, the history of Al-Shabaab and how it uh, currently operates, you know, is that it does, you know, in many ways fill a vacuum that the official state is, is not providing. State building, of course, is a very long and fraught process. Given that, you know, in many ways, Al-Shabaab is, is benefiting from a governance vacuum, do you see any ways that that can be improved in the short term that are, that are sort of easy steps? Or, or do you think that's just the situation that we're likely to have for, for some time? No, I do see I do see improvements, especially on the federal member states. You have strengthening federal member states uh, that are continuing, you know, to build up their systems bottom up. For instance, you know, you had Puntland just start their registration of, uh, you know, biometric registration for their voter exercise, their, the the elections that will be conducted next year. You have. Other federal member states, you know, moving in the same direction. Southwest, for instance, had, you know, one person, one vote elections within one or two districts. And so you, I think the push would come from the federal member state side. And then the electoral process that we're having right now, it's been fraught with a lot of tension. But I think the good side is that everyone realizes whoever comes in would have to really improve the relations with the federal member states if they're to take this nation forward. So it really has been, I think, a blessing to see that the leadership that might come in are starting to understand the importance of a better relationship with the federal member states. And that would be the united front that's needed to, you know, take on this fight. Mm, So that's really a doubling down on the federal model. What role do you see um, in that uh, for Somalia's international partners? Somalia's international partners have, have, you know, led the way. And I think they would really have to begin to trust, you know, the Somali leadership, begin to trust that, uh, you know, the Somalis can take the can take the first steps and they can ha- uh, hold our hands through that process or can support us through our, you know, Somali-led uh, uh, operations or political settlements. So really, I think for the international partners who for most of the time have been blamed of not understanding the context and pushing, you know, agendas or pushing uh, sometimes, you know, recipes from elsewhere, they would need to just really let the Somalis come to the agreements as they have, uh, they has, as they have done over the past year and support them through those agreements. Mm. And finally, uh, Samira, Obviously, the current government is still in the middle of this election process and election crisis. But when a new government comes in, how would you advise they approach the al-Shabaab issue differently? For the next administration, I think they have a lot of key priority tasks. And the priority tasks really are key political settlements between the federal government and the federal member states. This would be, you know, completing the constitution. This would be, you know, resource sharing. And then also, you know, the national security architecture that was signed in 2017, implementing that has been, you know, blocked by this uh, difficult relationship between the federal government and the federal member states. Understanding that architecture and starting to really implement it would be, I think, a key task of the next administration. So there is a list of key priority tasks that are not a secret to everybody, uh, you know, uh, agreements, political agreements between the center and the periphery. Those would be the, the key priorities for any administration to implement within the first six months while they still have the goodwill and the relationship between them and the IC. Thank you very much, Samira, for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me as well. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group, and this special summer series is produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 